I'm all for efficiency. Like when I go to the grocery, I like to go once and get what I need. I'm glad Jesus was efficient on the cross, just had to do it once. But I don't understand why when you take your six-month-old kid to the doctor, they have to put 12 shots in their legs and make them pin cushions. So, so I'm running on three hours of sleep. Stella was up all night and a pot of coffee, so if I'm a little jittery, that's what's going on. Um, yeah. So, this evening, we are concluding our series, A Year in the Life of Jesus. Uh, we've been looking at John chapters 2 through 4, and we're finishing up in chapter 4 today. It's been an exciting time for me. And before we kind of engage in today's text, I want to do a quick overview for maybe some of you who haven't been here uh, every week, or maybe you just came in today for the first time, and just do a quick overview of where we've been. So, if, Ian, if we can get that map, and I've got uh, my James Bond pen with the laser. All right, check this out. So, we started off couple months ago in Cana, which is in Galilee. And there's that pot of coffee kicking in. Go two hands. So we're in Cana of, in the region of Galilee, right here. And uh, this is where Jesus and his mom and his disciples, they go to a wedding, remember? And uh, the, the young couple runs out of wine, which is a major social faux pas. And uh, the big thing from, from this event is that Jesus' mom, she does not know what Jesus is going to do, how he's going to fix the problem, or you know, what that's going to look like. But she says one thing to the servants. She says, whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, do it. And that's kind of been the benchmark for what faith looks like in John's Gospel. And everything else that we see now is kind of measured up against Mary's statement, her, her faith in Jesus. So uh, he makes the water to wine. He's a great party guest. And then after Cana, he goes up here to Capernaum, which is on the waterfront of the Sea of Galilee. Like, I don't know what he's doing there. R&R. He's got a beach place. I don't know. But he doesn't stay there very long. He goes down for the Passover to Jerusalem. So he travels here now he's in Judea this region is Judea and he's he's at the Passover and if you remember he goes to the temple and he is uh, he's confronted with corruption in the temple and the deal with the temple corruption is that there's this huge court the outer court was the court of the Gentiles that's the one place in the temple where all the nations could come and worship and what had happened is they turned this court of the Gentiles into a marketplace so you've got animals and their refuse and all the noise and the only places one could really go and be still and worship God where you know in the tent in the areas where only Jewish men could go or or pure Jewish women, but everyone else from the other nations were excluded, really. And Jesus was furious about this and turns the tables over and makes a statement. And so that happens in, in Jerusalem. And then also Jerusalem is the place where we encounter Nicodemus and he comes to Jesus at night. And remember, Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel. He's the, the preaching pastor of a big church like Willow Creek or something. He's, he's the J.I. Packer or you know, N.T. Wright. If those names mean nothing, don't worry about it. But he's the big theologian of, of Israel. And Jesus tells him... You've got to be born again. Basically what he's saying is, no matter what your lineage, no matter what your education, every single one of us has to repent. We have to submit ourselves to God. And so, 
that, you know, that happens there in Jerusalem. Then Jesus leaves Jerusalem and goes to the, the Judean countryside, uh, which is a big area there, and he's, his disciples are baptizing. And the religious leaders get really miffed that he's doing this. And so there's this tension building up, and Jesus, for some reason or another, says, I'm leaving, I'm going to Galilee. And the scripture says that he had to go through Samaria. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but the normal route to go to Galilee for a Jewish teacher would be maybe around Samaria because the Jews despised the Samaritans. If they were in Samaria, it was seen as uh, uh, coming into contact with impure people. And uh, Jesus does a real radical move here and he goes right through Samaria and stops at the well of Jacob near Sychar. And it's there where he encounters this Samaritan woman that we've been talking about the last several weeks. Remember with the Samaritan woman, up until this point in John's Gospel, his own people really haven't even been buying into what he's saying. But here, a Samaritan woman comes to trust in his word. And not only that, but a Samaritan woman, go women, she becomes the first evangelist and she goes back and tells her village and they come to faith in Jesus. Not because of what Jesus, uh, because of what the woman said, but based on the word of Jesus. And I don't know if you remember this, the way they described him, they called him the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. So the Samaritans, these people that the Jews despised, they were getting Jesus. They were starting to understand him. And now we're moving on. Go ahead, Ian, take that away. And... Um, we're getting into today's text, starting in verse 43 of uh, John chapter 4. It goes like this. So, right up to this point, the Samaritans have come to believe in Jesus. They've asked Him to stay for two days. And now, now we get to the text. After the two days, He went forth from there into Galilee. So now Jesus continues that trek up to Galilee. For Jesus Himself testified that a prophet has no honor in His own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Alright, interesting. Jesus goes to Galilee. Then he quotes this proverb that says, uh, or the saying, basically, that prophets don't have any honor in their hometown, in their home country. And I think what Jesus is really talking about here is not, not Nazareth, where he grew up, or even the region of Galilee, but all of Israel. He's saying, I'm not really honored among my own people. And notice, I mean, the story right before this, he receives all kinds of honor in Samaria, the, the least likely place for him to receive honor. So he says that, you know, he doesn't receive honor in his own town, in his own country. And then there's this interesting saying that the Galileans received him. Now, in John chapter 1, which we read way back in April, I don't expect you to remember it all, but there's that part where it says, uh, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Not be called children of God, but to become children of God. So what does this say? It means that the Samaritans, the Samaritans have, at least in that one village, have become children of God. Woo, scandalous. Uh, you know, if you're a first century Jewish reader and you're reading this for the first time, you're just... What is going on here? The Samaritans have become children of God. And so now, it's, you remember John chapter 1 says that Jesus came to his own. They did not receive him. Now he's in Galilee. And it says that the Galileans received him. Now what's going on? Is there a contradiction? 
Well, John gives us a clue. He says that these Galileans had been in Jerusalem and had seen Jesus' signs. And I think what's going on here is that John wants us to, to, to ask ourselves, and he's asking of the Galileans, are they believing in Jesus' signs or are they believing in His Word? The Samaritans believed Jesus' word and they called Him Savior of the world. We're not sure yet in this text what the Galileans really believe. So what does it mean to really believe in Jesus? What does it mean to receive Him? Is it just following signs? Well, I think uh, what's really helpful is actually Donald Miller in his book, Blue Like Jazz. I was just skimming through this the other day. There's a great little excerpt on here uh, that I think will kind of help illustrate this point a little bit. I talked to a girl recently who said she liked Ethan Hawke, an actor and a writer. He has a couple of novels out, and they're supposed to be really good, but I haven't read them. I know he's a fan of Douglas Coupland, which is a good thing if you ask me, so I'd probably like to read his stuff someday. But she was saying how she liked him as a person, and I asked her why. She had to think quite a bit about it before she answered. But her answer was that he was an actor and a writer, not just an actor. So, he's an actor and a writer, and that's why you like him? I asked. Yeah, she said, and I thought that was pretty profound. I thought, I'm in a cranky mood, so I asked her if she knew what, what he believed. What do you mean, she said. I mean, do you know what he believes? I looked at her squarely. Believes in what? Believes in anything, I said. Well, she told me as she sat back in her chair. I don't know. I don't know what he believes. Well, do you think he's cool? Of course he's cool, she said. And that's the thing that's so frustrating to me. I don't know if we really like pop culture icons, follow them, buy into them because we resonate with what they believe, or whether we buy into them because we think they're cool. I was wondering the other day, why is it that we turn pop figure icons into idols? I have a theory, of course. I think we have this need to be cool. And that there's this undercurrent in society that says some people are cool and some people aren't. And it's very, very important that we're cool. And it kind of goes on with this stream of thought. At this point in Jesus' life, he's kind of cool. He's, no one's talking about crucifying him yet. He's gaining followers, which really ticked off the religious leaders. He's doing all these cool signs. And I, I think that John's making us ask the question, did the Galileans receive him because of what he believes in, because of what he's saying about himself? The Samaritans believed his word, and they said he's the savior of the world. What are the Galileans going to say about him? Or do they just think he's cool? Do they just want to follow him because of his signs? Figuring out the kind of belief God is looking for is one of the most important things in the universe. I'll say that again because I'm not overstating it. Figuring out the kind of belief God is looking for is one of the most important things in the universe. Why? Because, well, our doctrine says we're saved by grace, through faith, through belief. And the author of Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please God. So what is it to have faith? What is it to believe? What kind of belief is God looking for? 
Now, Donald Miller makes the point about a kind of belief in someone or love for someone because it's popular. It's, it's about what I can get from that person. Now, whether it's Ethan Hawke or the President of the United States, belief in someone because of what you can get from them is different than belief in someone because of whom they are. And John wants us to understand that belief in Jesus because of what we can get from Him is not the kind of faith that God is looking for. And to illustrate his point, I think that John wants us to see the story about the nobleman and his son to really get that driven home in our heads. So let's continue on in verse 46 through 48. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick in Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This man is a royal official. Now, for some of you who read the Bible more frequently, you might remember the story in some of the other Gospels about a, a Roman centurion who had a sick slave and, and he believes in Jesus to heal this slave over a distance. This, this is a different story, actually. This man that they're talking about is a royal official, most likely a, a Jewish man who is in the court group of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the Tetrarch of, uh, of Galilee, and he reigned from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. And let me just be frank, he was a jerk. Uh, his own people didn't really like him, and especially the religious leaders didn't respect him because he didn't really respect Judaism. And one of his big, one of his big moves that people hated him for was he built this town called Tiberias. He built it. He built it. This Tiberius as a place where he could live and all his aristocrats could live. But he built it on top of a Jewish graveyard. Which would mean that for any Jewish person, especially a religious leader, to even step foot in that town would make them unclean. So this is the kind of disrespect Herod had for his own Jewish faith. So people did not like him. And this royal official was probably one of Herod's aristocrats. He's got a sick son. And so he travels to this tiny town of Cana. And remember when we talked about the, the woman at the well, Cana was this hodunk town. So it would be like this royal official was from New York City and he's going out to Glacier or something like that. And this guy, you know, he's an aristocrat and he, he is used to getting what he wants. So he goes into this little town of Cana and he's thinking, I'm a big fish in a little fish bowl. I'm going to come in here and tell this vagabond healer guy that he's healing my son. Alright, so that's kind of where he's probably coming from. And interestingly, Jesus' words are, well, I guess it's not very interesting, it's kind of common. Jesus' words are not the most like sensitive to this guy. Imagine the scene. He, he comes in on his high horse and he seeks Jesus out. And, um, well, let's say, you know, Brian, you kind of have a Jesus-y look, I guess. Got the beard going, at least. So I'm the royal official, and this is, you guys are just Cana. I mean, this might be, like, close to the population of Cana. And I come to you and I say, my son is sick, and I want you to come with me to heal him. 
Brian, in, in the story, Jesus doesn't even talk to the guy personally. He uses the plural. And it's like he turns away and just says, unless you all believe, or unless you all see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. The royal official comes to Jesus and Jesus turns it into a teaching point with the Galileans. And here's the crux of the issue. In Samaria, the people believed in Jesus' word, not just his signs. How will this people respond? How will the Galileans respond to Jesus? You know, and I want to have a caveat here, faith in Jesus because of what he does, that's not a bad thing. In fact, I venture to, to reason to hear that most of you have had your faith increased because of things that God has done. Maybe you've had some answered prayer in your life and it's increased your faith in Jesus. Maybe you know, you've seen a healing or divine intervention or maybe you just look up at the beauty of Bellingham and you say, There's, you know, I, I have faith that, that God made this. We have an awesome God who does awesome things all the time. It's not bad to have faith because of these signs. The difference is, is we have faith in the person of Jesus, the one who does the signs, and not just follow Him because of the signs. True belief is not based on what we want Jesus to do for us. If we put conditions on Him, if we require Him to do signs so that we'll believe, we've really kind of moved Him over and put ourselves in the throne of God. What will the royal official do? Will he trust Jesus on His terms or require His own? Let's read on. 49 and 50. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. Let me stop there before I read the, the rest of it. The royal official is kind of polite. He says, Sir, which could also be translated Lord. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of a polite way to start. But, but he is not, uh, he's not exactly humble. Here's what happens. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. That come down is actually in the imperative, which means that Jesus, or the royal official is commanding Jesus to do something. So he, he doesn't really come in very humble. He doesn't realize whom he's talking with, does he? He comes in still as a man of power, as an aristocrat to little Cana, and he tells Jesus, Sir, you're coming with me. I want you to come heal my son. He's trying to tell Jesus what to do. And I'm thinking that Jesus' reply could not at all be very satisfying for this guy. Right? He's come all this way, um, and Jesus just tells him, Go, your son lives. Now, I don't know about you. And, and guys, go with me here. Your, your kid is sick, and your wife sends you out to go find Jesus. Uh, you travel. You know, I don't know how the guy travels. Camel, whatever. I got a nice envoy, but... You know, you come back home empty-handed. I can just see Corey. So, did you talk with Jesus? Uh-huh. Yeah, talk to him. Nice guy. Yeah, yeah, he's got cool sandals. I think they're Chacos. I don't know. Um, so, 
Where the expletive is he? You go all the way there, you are the royal official in this area, and you can't get this vagabond healer to come with you? What's the problem? Our kid is sick here. And I imagine that that's the the kind of pressure that he's under. He's used to getting his way. And you know, that's where it really gets personal for me, and I imagine it gets personal for you. Because whether we realize it or not, we live in a culture like this royal official. Compared to the vast majority of the world, we're relatively powerful and relatively wealthy, and frankly, we feel entitled to a lot of things. In fact, I've got a few uh, finish these sentences, little quiz here. You might just be a privileged Westerner if you can finish these phrases. Look out for number... My way or the... The customer is always... Money talks, blank walks. Don't, Don't do that one. You get the point. We kind of live in this Burger King culture where I want it my way right away. I was in a a hardware store last week and they must really be trying to save money because there's like no clerks now. It's like all those automated checker things and this poor high school boy is like trying to to give customer service to all four of these automated tellers and two of them aren't working and you know so I have to wait like a whole five minutes and there's a lady in front of me who's just ah, ah, she's looking at me like aren't you mad too and Finally, she literally throws her bag on the floor, screams at this poor kid as if it's his store or something, and says, I am never coming back here. Now, I wish I could tell you that I was so much more mature, but inside, I'm just confessing, you know, that lady's right, this is this stinks. Like, we're the real checkers. But you know, I watched something like what you just had, Brian, and I'm thinking in some of these places in Colombia where they don't even have a bus... They don't have a store like that. Even if a person had the money to buy the stuff I was there to buy, it's just not available in most places in the world. But this is the culture that you and I are part of. And we have a sense of entitlement. And I think that that's really why it's difficult to follow a guy, a Jesus, a God, the God, who we cannot control, we cannot coerce, I am entitled to really nothing. Jesus could like stop willing me to breathe right now and I would fall down. I'm not entitled to draw breath right now. You're alive by grace right now, amen? this This is hard for us to get our minds around in the West. And I think that that's why this nobleman's response is so amazing. He's there, all this pressure to get healing for his son... He's used to having things his way. He commands Jesus to come back with him, and Jesus says, Go, your son is healed. This guy has an option, a couple options. I mean, maybe he had bodyguards. He could have tried to abduct Jesus. Maybe he could have thrown, like that lady at the hardware store, and thrown a fit. But this is what he does the man believed the word that Jesus spoke and started off. He believed in Jesus' word. And he headed for home, not really knowing what to expect. He doesn't really know if his son will be healed. 
How's he going to face his wife if his son doesn't make it? That he believes in Jesus' word. Let me read the rest of the text. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. This again is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This is so cool. The man showed faith in Jesus, but then he realizes that Jesus has actually fulfilled his word. His whole family believed. Now, I, I say this probably about every scripture. Oh, this is my favorite scripture, my favorite book of the Bible. But I, I, I love John's Gospel. I think it's so genius the way this is written. And there, there's just two things in the way that John writes this narrative I want to point out that just adds some, some meat to this whole thing. First of all, there's the way that John describes this royal official. When we first are introduced to this guy, he's described as the royal official. You remember, he's kind of on his high horse. He's coming into little Cana, and he actually commands the Lord of the universe to, to come heal his son. But we go a little further on in the story, in verse 50, and John starts referring to this guy as the man. And I'm not, I don't think he's meaning dumb man, like, you know, the guy's all that. Like, he's just a man. He's now not the royal official, but he's kind of, the man is learning some humility, and now he's just a guy. And finally, after his encounter with Jesus and seeing the power of Jesus' word, he's introduced to us as the son's father. And it's, it's recognizing who he is in the presence of Jesus, that's, that's the real telling part of the humility. You know, you all come from different walks of life. Some of you are teachers or professors or business owners or managers or you have some level of control, pastors, whatever, some level of power. But before Jesus, we're all sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. We're all people, women and men. We lose our titles before Jesus. And there's really good news in this because it means that you and I are not God. What this man realized is that the, the outcome of his son did no, no longer rested on his shoulders. It rested on Jesus' shoulders. That's awesome news. I don't know what anxieties you're carrying. Whatever it is, you can put it before the Lord of the universe and know with a fact that He has our best interests in mind. So why is belief so important? Why is trusting Jesus such a big deal? The answer is another choice in words that John records here. Now, this is a review for a lot of you, but what are the two ways in Greek that you can say life? Bios, Zoe. Bios and Zoe. Right, and, and Bios life is the, you know, I, I'm born, I mature, I die. It's what plants do, it's what bugs do, it's what I do without Jesus. It's just this stuff. It's, it's 
living and dying life. Zoe life is the way that John often describes eternal life. The God-breathed life. The redeemed life. Now what's interesting here is he, he normally doesn't use this Zoe term for just normal, normal living. But what's fascinating, and watch this. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. And the root of that lives is actually the Zoe root. Now, this kid is not still alive. Like, he didn't get eternal life right there. In fact, I mean, it's impossible, right? Otherwise, this guy would still be alive and he'd be doing all these tours on Christian TV or something like, Oh, I'm still alive from Jesus' day. No, he's not still alive. What is Jesus trying to communicate here? I think that it's our belief in Jesus, our trust in Him, leads us to this Zoe life, this eternal, God-breathed life. And I love how John includes that in here. It's a small detail, but it makes all the difference in the world because there's no reason why he ought to use Zoe instead of Bios at this, point, at this stage. The son's father had belief in Jesus and his family believed into eternal life. And so here we are, and Jesus has spoken a word to us. He calls us to cast our fears, our anxieties, our grasping for control at his feet. He calls us to lay down our titles, our prestige, our assumed power, our assumed entitlement. And he bids us to come follow him, to be reborn, to be renewed, to become fully alive. We are all at different stages in life this evening. But what would it look like for each of us to more fully believe? What would it look like for each of us to more fully believe? Let's just take a moment and silently meditate on that. Jesus, we declare that you are alive. That you are embodied in a glorified body. You have a face. You have a substance. You're more than a concept. You're more than a power. You are Christ the Lord. We declare that you reign, that you rule. That despite the chaos sometimes in our lives and in this world, 
you are in control. That you will bring this existence to a good end. And that despite appearances, you have our best interests in mind. Jesus, we declare that we are not God. Forgive us when we act like we are. And pray for each of us, Lord, that you'd help us this week to take one step closer in truly believing in you. Casting our fears and anxieties at your feet. And casting our triumphs at your feet. Help us to be people of joy, people filled with the Spirit, people of celebration, and people of humility. Help us to believe as if our Zoe depended on it. You know, if something came to mind during that time of silence, I just want to encourage you to maybe jot that down on your notes, put it in your Bible. Um, talk about it amongst your small group, maybe. I know for me, as I was preparing this message and just thinking, you know, where, where are you calling me to? What to let go of? That, and one of the things that I'm grasping onto is just this community right here and letting learning to let go of the outcome of things and to trust God that this is God's mission in the lettered streets. Um, I'm not taking myself so seriously. That's good news for me this week and I hope that you are receiving some good news from this text as well. I'm going to invite those who are going to help serve communion to come forward. He took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it.